Welcome to BrainBeat, the podcast series of the National Academy of Neuropsychology, otherwise known as NAN. I'm Dr. Peter Arnett, past president of NAN and professor at Penn State University, and I'll be your host today. It's a pleasure for me to introduce Dr. John DeLuca, who will be talking with us today about cognitive rehabilitation. Dr. DeLuca is the senior vice president for research and training at the Kessler Foundation, a professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and the Department of Neurology at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. He is board certified in rehabilitation psychology by the American Board of Professional Psychology. Dr. DeLuca is internationally known for his research on disorders of memory and information processing in a variety of clinical populations, including multiple sclerosis, traumatic brain injury, aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, and chronic fatigue syndrome. Dr. DeLuca has published over 350 articles and book chapters in these areas, has edited seven books in neuropsychology, neuroimaging and rehabilitation, and is a co-editor for the Encyclopedia of Clinical Neuropsychology. He's received over $38 million in grant support for his research. Dr. DeLuca's most recent ventures include the cerebral mapping of human cognitive processes using functional neuroimaging, as well as the development of research-based techniques to improve cognitive impairment. Dr. DeLuca is also the past president of NAN. Welcome, Dr. DeLuca, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Arnett. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So if we could just start out, what is cognitive rehabilitation? If you can give us some definitions of that. Sure. So think about it this way. When somebody has a brain injury, like a traumatic brain injury or a stroke or a brain disease, such as multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, things can happen. And some of the things that can happen is problems with their thinking, such as memory or attention or problem solving, but you also have other problems such as emotional issues, depression, anxiety, or difficulty expressing oneself or understanding the expression of others. You can have physical disabilities, all of which can have an impact on everyday life activities, significant impact on family, social, vocational activities. So cognitive rehabilitation is a program designed to address these problems. And it sounds like the idea is to just address the cognitive problem, let's just say just the memory problem or the attention problem. But a a cognitive rehabilitation program treats the entire patient. And that is, you don't want to just treat the memory problem if a person has significant emotional disorders or difficulties vocationally. So a comprehensive cognitive rehabilitation program are experts that are designed to help people with their problems and the impact on everyday life. Okay. And you've already uh, alluded to this and, you know, kind of giving us some nice definitions of what is involved with cognitive rehabilitation, but who would be able to access these kinds of cognitive rehabilitation services? Well, you know, persons who have brain damage or brain injuries or brain diseases, persons who have a cognitive problem or an emotional problem that really affects their everyday life. So it really is available or should be available to everybody. Uh, That's not always the case, but um, the idea, once again, is that once you have this problem, you really have to get through and and continue with your life, Mm -hmm. and that often requires treatment. And in terms of, you sort of alluded to, you know, access to care, suggesting that everybody should be able to have access to this, but does insurance cover cognitive rehabilitation? You know, that's a really tricky problem. And unfortunately, it's not an equal opportunity kind of thing. You know, 
It depends on the insurance company. It depends on the state that you live in. It depends on the type of injury that you may have. So some states have what's called no-fault insurance for mm-hmm. persons with automobile accidents. And they tend to be more likely to cover services like this. And the neurodegenerative disorders, such as multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. there may be more difficulty and more challenges in getting the kind of treatment that people need. But I certainly think that what families and patients should really do is to fight for these services mm-hmm. um, because they should be available, even though it may be more challenging. Mm-hmm. And if someone needed to find cognitive rehabilitation services, so let's say it is covered by insurance, they're able to afford that or it's covered, where would somebody go about finding this? Like if uh, I live in a particular place, where would I go and seek out these kinds of services? Well, if you're in, in, a, uh, in a city, a particularly large city, you would go to ideally a rehabilitation hospital. You can go to an acute hospital. You can call the uh, state psychological association mm-hmm. and find out who might be providing such services. And um, you can call the insurance. A lot of times state services, like if, for example, state psychological association can provide you with least psych- psychologists who are able to provide the services. You might go to your GP, but your general practitioner, but they may not really know because this is specialized service that is available. So you really have, you might have to do some legwork on this. Okay. And uh, I know in the community that I live, which is a kind of a small to medium-sized city in State College, there aren't a lot of people who do this type of work. There are a few, but what if somebody lives in an area where nobody there practices this kind of service? Is it possible to access this through telehealth, for example? Well, you know, one of the interesting things about the pandemic is that Teleservices, telerehabilitation, telemedicine has become more of an acceptable way to obtain treatment. I would certainly say before the pandemic, that would have been a, a huge challenge. After the pandemic, the possibility is much greater. That's not a guarantee. You would still want to be able to contact the places that I had mentioned earlier and ask them, you know, if there's nobody in my region, is there somebody? who be able to provide those services. So if you're in a small community like, like yours, Dr. Arnett, you might want to call state services. You might want to call a city nearby. And ideally, down the road, perhaps, if telehealth services are provided nationwide, maybe you can call places across the state. There are challenges with that because of licensure issues. Typically, people are licensed within a state and need to provide services within that state. But nonetheless, these are the kinds of things that patients and families need to really be involved in to get to obtain some of these services. Now, if, you're, if your loved one is at a VA, Veterans Administration Hospital, the VA has made it a really high challenge for them to be able to provide telehealth services across the country. That may be a, a one option that may be even more viable than some of the other regional opportunities. So if, you, if you're... You're a veteran, that might be a, a real important way and opportunity for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, beyond getting access to care, once a person is actually connected up with somebody who can do cognitive rehabilitation, how does the whole process work? Is it, for example, like doing psychotherapy or counseling? How does the whole process work? 
Yeah, it's not like psychotherapy, although psychotherapy could be part of the program. The program works by first trying to understand what the problem is. And that would be like any other doctor visit. What's the history? What happened? What are the problems that the patient is experiencing? And then there may be interviews with other people on the team, such as the psychologist, the physician, an occupational therapist, a speech therapist. And the team gets together and comes up with a plan, a cognitive rehabilitation plan. And that will be individualized. That will be depending on the particular needs of a patient. So a patient may have primarily cognitive problems with their thinking or their memory. Others may have more problems which are emotional, which affect their cognitive abilities. And so the team puts together a program and then they get back to the patient, describe the program and initiate services. And those services can take quite a bit of time, can take several times per week and can result in, in services for months. So it really depends on the patient and the patient's needs. Okay. So that individualized plan of care sounds really appealing, I'm sure, for a lot of people. And do these procedures tend to work pretty well? I mean, in terms of, say, improving somebody's memory or their ability to pay attention more effectively, process information better? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that or talk a little bit about the evidence for um, some of these procedures. Yeah, I know the research data on this, Dr. Annette, is, is really quite good. That's not to say that patients get back to their pre-injury or pre-disease state. And a lot of the, the what happens in these kinds of plans that are put together is that they ultimately come up with goals. And the goal with someone, let's just say, with very severe brain injury may not be to get back to work, mm-hmm. but it may be to be functionally independent in everyday life activities. It may be things like Uh, We want to make sure that the person is able to go shopping and do so by using mass mass transit, for example, if you were in the city. So the goals can be very specific and very individualized. It doesn't mean that their memory will be 100% better. It means that their memory may improve. The goal may be to improve learning and memory to the point that they're able to meet their daily requirements, such as going to see the doctor or if you are still working, being able to go to work and function independently at work, mm-hmm. see that your, your work environment needs accommodations. And those accommodations can be physical or they can be cognitive, they can be emotional. Mm-hmm. So the goals are set up by the team. And, and again, the nice thing about being very individualized is that really comes down to the needs of the particular patient. So the data is good in the sense that it can be positive in terms of meeting the goals. But I think it's important for everybody to understand that the goals are not necessarily we're going to make your memory back to where you were. Because some of the people who have these cognitive and uh, problems with the brain can be very, very severe. Okay. So, so it seems to go back to the individualized plan of care that you were mentioning earlier. So there's not necessarily going to be recovery of function. It's sort of going to depend on the individual, although there could be. It sounds like there may be populations who may be more or less likely to benefit in that regard than others. Are there particular groups of people who might be more or less likely to be able to recover their function versus the goal might be more to just get them to adapt to a new level of functioning? Yeah, you know, the more severe the problem, 
the less likely that they will get back to where they were. However, persons with even a mild brain injury, for example, could actually get to the point where they're back to where they were. They're able to go back to work. They're able to go back to school, function without any significant anxiety or depression if that was part of the issue. Their cognitive problems could come back. There could always be some lingering issues such as fatigue. Fatigue is a huge issue following any kind of brain damage or brain disease. There could be some lingering issues, but those can be addressed also in therapeutic fashion. The cognitive rehabilitation approach may start off with quite a few sessions, but it could end up where, let's just say a few months from now, you're you're meeting once a month with a a therapist to deal with the lingering issues. Mm -hmm. The great thing about the program, it is very individualized. Mm -hmm. It is pretty good. That's very encouraging. And in terms of who might provide this service, do neuropsychologists typically provide cognitive rehabilitation services or would there be some other specialists who might be better suited to this? And neuropsychologists, of course, are very well trained in understanding the relationship between problems in the brain and what's happening in their everyday lives. It's interesting that three pound mass of a brain at 75% water controls everything that we do. The neuropsychologist has a special training to be able to do that. If you work with a neuropsychologist who may not have particular training in cognitive rehabilitation, they can refer to someone else who might. The neuropsychologist really is the top professionals who can help in this particular domain. It real, and it is something that oftentimes is not physical. Mm-hmm. So you will need a specialist like a neuropsychologist to be able to help. Right. Makes sense. And then what can family members do to help their loved ones who have a brain disorder, like who may have had a traumatic brain injury, some neurological condition like multiple sclerosis, dementia, or something like mild cognitive impairment? What are the kinds of things that family members might be able to do to help their loved ones beyond you know, sort of these formal kinds of interventions of cognitive rehabilitation? That's a great question, Dr. Ned, and I get that all the time. Obviously, families will do whatever they can for their loved ones. One of the things that I'll start with you shouldn't do is try to be the therapist. That really should be the job of, of a professional. But mm-hmm. being able to keep your loved one as part of the family circuit as much as possible is really an important first step. Make them feel comfortable and understanding. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go out of your way to do everything for them. You can work with the the cognitive rehabilitation team, or if you're not unable to get services, to to just ensure that your loved one is able to progress in a small fashion. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that families and loved ones can do this is that the whole idea of cognitive reserve. And cognitive reserve refers to providing an enriched environment, intellectual stimulation for the patient so that whatever problems they may have, particularly in the cognitive domain, but also in the emotional domain, that reserve continues to build. Mm -hmm. And the data is pretty clear that building a cognitive reserve can actually promote cognitive health down the road. So for example, in multiple sclerosis, which is a degenerative disease, or in, in, in Alzheimer's dementia, you have individuals who have a, a higher cognitive reserve are less likely to show cognitive decline later on in their lives. So what the families can do is provide an stimulating environment for their loved one. 
don't try to baby, if you will, your loved ones. Stimulate them to the point that you can. So I always say, for example, if your loved one was always interested in reading, for example, and now the complaint is, well, I can't read like I used to because I can't remember things, join a reading group. Because you want to get people reading. You want to intellectually stimulate people. And the other thing about a reading group is that it's also socially stimulating. Social stimulation is actually really important, particularly if you're talking about individuals who are, who are maybe depressed. Getting that social stimulation can really help. Plus, it can also help with remembering what they've read as people are now going through the last couple of chapters. And the patients may say, oh, yes, right. I do remember that. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like they would get some repetition of the material just by being involved in that kind of a social group or reading group. Absolutely. And, and it can build a sense of, I can do this. So that's an example. I always say, play cards. Cards is a, is a stimulating environment, you know. Play cards with your family. Sure. Include your loved one. Go to movies. Go out. Be physically active. Even if you just go for a walk and engage your family, loved ones socially. The point is here is that a cognitively, intellectually enriching environment can really help your patient. Think about if you had a problem with your arm, a lot of what you might want to do is to try to practice mm-hmm. repeatedly with your arm movements. Well, here you want to practice your mental activity, your mental movements, and that's the same kind of thing. So families can do that pretty well and probably better. And a lot of therapists because you can see them more frequently. So, yeah, so it sounds like getting involved in social stimulation in terms of being around other people, cognitive stimulation in terms of playing card games, going to movies, being involved in other kinds of uh, activities that might stimulate that. You mentioned physical activity as well could be beneficial. Absolutely. Physical activities can energize the brain. It can promote oxygenation in the brain and therefore can promote cognitive improvement, emotional improvement. You know, that's the kind of thing that you want to do. I would add that just watching TV all day long is not the kind of stimulation that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. We're talking about intellectually stimulating and challenging kinds of things that you should be challenging your loved one physically. If they have significant physical problems, you may need to speak to your physician about that. But you want to be able to go for a walk and get the heart rate up a little bit to the point where everybody's comfortable, your physician and and your loved one and yourself. Those are all great things. And the data on this is very clear. It used to be years ago, the idea was you don't be involved in physical activities. Well, the data is actually the opposite today, Mm -hmm. that you are involved in physical and cognitively challenging environments actually helps your brain actually can help your cognitive and your emotional issues. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Great. It's good to know that there are things that family members can do beyond, you know, the sort of formal cognitive rehabilitation to help their loved ones. Um, that's really encouraging. And in terms of the family members involvement um, with helping their loved one who may have some kind of brain disorder, We've talked a lot about more informal kind of involvement, but what about in terms of the formal cognitive rehabilitation process? Are family members typically involved in that? Well, yes. Family members will be part of the interviewing early on. Oftentimes, the families can be involved in group therapy sessions. Oftentimes, the family 
needs to be involved because there can be particular family issues that are very particular to that family that which need to be addressed. So psychotherapy is part and can be part, an integral part of cognitive rehabilitation. Family services can be an important part of that. Mm -hmm. And so absolutely, the family engagement can be really important. There can be homework that can be assigned to the patient. Families would, would want to make sure that the homework is done. And the homework could involve the family as well. So I think that it's not the kind of thing like you take a pill and it helps your illness. Cognitive rehabilitation really requires treating the whole person. And that means engagement. And in terms of that whole process, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is whether this whole process of cognitive rehabilitation actually changes brain functioning. Is there some evidence for that? Yes. Yeah, it's a really good question, Dr. Arnett. You know, we know today that when we provide cognitive rehabilitation services, it actually changes the activity that's going on in the brain. In particular, we can actually study the circuitry, the integrated circuits within the brain and show that cognitive rehabilitation services improves the communication between regions of the brain. So the effects are not necessarily just providing let's just say behavioral tricks, if you will. It really is treatment. And it's treatment that is changing brain activity. So even when there's areas of the brain that are damaged, when you provide cognitive services, the brain can actually reroute those kinds of things that need to be done to make sure that the tasks or the the behaviors can be once again functional. Again, not to say that they're going to get 100% back, because the brain is damaged. You know, if you're a, a pitcher for a major league team and you hurt your arm, uh, even with therapy, you may not ever be able to get back and strike people out anymore. The right. same thing, you need a rehab, but you can show improvements. And that's done through neuroplasticity, that is, through changes within brain activity. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good to know, I think, for our listeners and especially those folks who may have had a loved one who. It had some kind of brain disorder like brain injury, multiple sclerosis, things like that, that the brain actually could be changed for the better, that these different parts of the brain could improve their communication. And as a result, people could function better. So that's really encouraging to know that. This is all very fascinating stuff, Dr. DeLuca. And um, it really is a lot of food for thought for, I'm sure, people who have had loved ones who have had brain conditions that might affect their cognitive functioning. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about was what are the kinds of problems that people typically come in to seek out cognitive rehabilitation for? Is it like problems with memory, with attention, concentration, processing speed, maybe all of those things. But I just wanted to ask you to maybe tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, the typical complaint from a family or even a patient is that something seems to be wrong with my memory. I can't mm-hmm. remember things like I used to. Mm-hmm. That's the number one complaint that people have. Mm-hmm. And that's really important because the problem may be memory. And so when you go see a specialist like a neuropsychologist, they will do a complete evaluation of cognitive and emotional skills. And it may be, for example, that like in mild traumatic brain injury, for example, or early multiple sclerosis or early Parkinson's or even mild cognitive impairment, that the problems may be in slowed processing speed. 
So what happens when the brain gets a little bit of damage or dysfunction, it's not working efficiently. That efficiency results in the brain being a little slower, a little slower to learn information, a little slower to retrieve information from long-term storage. And so the patient's perception is, I can't remember like, like I used to. But right. the problem actually could be because of the slow processing speed, you're not learning to begin with. And if you're not learning to begin with, of course, there's nothing to remember. So the complete neuropsychological evaluation can be more accurate in pinpointing what the actual problem is. And therefore, the therapy will be targeted to that problem, even though the complaint may be a problem in their memory. Another example is a lot of times people have problems with their problem-solving kinds of things or difficulty in expressing what they're trying to think, what they're really trying to say. Again, the complaint is, I, I can't seem to remember how to do things at my work. Mm-hmm. And this can be a different problem than learning, than memory. It can be what's called executive function, that is acting on behavior. And it sounds like a very complicated thing, and that's why you go to a professional. Patients have never come to me and so have an executive problem. And so that's why it's really important for the neuropsychologist to be able to do an accurate assessment to pinpoint what the problem is so that the treatment can be the proper treatment. Okay. And so it sounds like getting a thorough neuropsychological evaluation then might be something that an individual would need to get before seeking out cognitive rehabilitation services. Would that be a fair statement? Well, one could do that. And if one is is saying, I have problems with my memory, you might want to then go to a neuropsychologist first, and the neuropsychologist can say, you know, I think you need treatment. And therefore, either that neuropsychologist or another specialist in cognitive rehabilitation, might, you might get a referral for something like that mm-hmm. uh, to treat the very the specific problem. And that can happen. It doesn't have to be a full-blown severe brain injury mm-hmm. that you go for cognitive rehabilitation. It can be more subtle problems. This can happen in children. You can have attention deficit disorders. Mm -hmm. You can have reading disorders. And those things can be addressed and you want to address them. What about people who've had concussions? That's certainly something that there's been a lot of talk of in the media and, you know, just in general conversation in recent years. Would people who have concussions normally need to seek out something like cognitive rehabilitation? Well, certainly if you have a concussion, there can be the same kinds of problems that we were talking about. There can be cognitive issues, emotional issues, fatigue. And so you want to be able to do, again, a proper assessment. And however, working with a cognitive rehabilitation team, which in this case could be a single neuropsychologist, help get that patient back into school or back into the community or get back into work. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the, the things that People used to say after a concussion, why don't you just stay home and rest? Well, in fact, today what we know is that we slowly have to get the patients back into their environments. Mm -hmm. And working with someone like a neuropsychologist in dealing with the emotional or the cognitive or the fatigue issues is actually going to help the patient get right back to where they were. Sometimes those symptoms can last longer than one might expect. And that you really do need a specialized treatment. And then in terms of the types of techniques that are used, could you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Like what are some of the techniques that somebody working in cognitive rehabilitation might use to say, help somebody with their memory, help somebody 
with processing things more effectively. You also mentioned executive functioning in terms of those sorts of things. Yeah. So let me give you a couple examples of evidence-based approaches that we've known for decades, sometimes over a century, that we know actually work to help patients. So for example, there's something called spaced learning. And so uh, a lot of times you hear, oh, repetition, we need repetition, repetition, and eventually you'll be able to pick it up. Well, in fact, repetition alone in learning new information doesn't work too well. What does work is being able to provide a new learning environment, say reading a a newspaper article. Mm -hmm. Rather than have them read the article three times in a row, spacing the learning apart actually increases the ability to remember that information, to learn it and remember it. So in other words, read the newspaper article, put it down for 10, 15 minutes, then read it again, then put it down, and then maybe read it for a third time. We know that even with persons with brain damage will remember that information better by using spaced learning techniques. And so those are things that can be taught to the patient. The patient can themselves utilize that. And that the family can also help with that kind of thing. If you, mm-hmm. for example, if your loved one has a doctor's appointment on Friday and it's Monday and you say to your loved one, you know, you have a doctor's appointment on Friday, try to re- remember that. Where do you have that appointment? Say it again later in the day or the next day. Spacing the learning trials apart works really well. So that's just one example. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds like a fairly straightforward technique that a lot of people could use. One of the examples you gave was, say, reading the newspaper and then putting it down, doing something else, coming back, reading it again. That's one way to kind of um, establish memory for the things the person is reading. Does it matter what they're doing in that interval when they're not reading the paper? Like, what if I read the newspaper and then, you know, I'm looking, surfing the internet on my computer and then I go back to the newspaper? Um, Does that matter? Or would it be better to just do something like take a walk around the neighborhood while I'm taking that break before I go back to the newspaper. Uh, guess what I'm trying to get is in that interval between reading the paper, it doesn't matter what the person's doing. You know, it really doesn't matter so much. What matters is the spaced learning. It may be that if you have, if you're reading a newspaper, you may not want to then read a book and then come back to read the newspaper. But generally speaking, the most important part is to space the learning trials apart. And are there beyond like memory and, you know, working on developing better techniques for that, are there other techniques that are used in cognitive rehabilitation to say, help a person with their ability to process information better or to pay attention to things better? So one of the more common problems, like I had mentioned earlier, when there's some damage to the brain, it becomes inefficient. It doesn't mean patients can't solve problems. It doesn't mean they can't remember. It means that they're having difficulty doing it. Mm-hmm. So if the complaint is learning and memory, but we find out that the problem is really an inefficient brain and processing speed is slow. One of the things that what happens is, let's say you're at a, um, a party and you're having a conversation with somebody and they're talking and they're talking and they're talking. Mm-hmm. And in that conversation, they say, you know, make sure you give me a call, you know, on Thursday and we'll go out. You have to teach the patient to know, I probably did not get all of that information mm-hmm. because my processing speed is slower. Once the patient understands that, 
then there are things that the patient can learn to do by saying, hold on a second and repeat what they were saying. Uh, did you mean that we were going to go out on Thursday? Should I call you? Or are you going to call me? Slowing down the conversation is something that's really important. Slowing down the learning opportunities is something that can be taught to a person who's having slow processing speed. So think about if your loved one is a student at a university, let's just say, and there's a lecture and the professor is just going on and on and on and on. You're not going to be able to stop the professor. But in that case, if you know the problem is a problem, you can actually record the lecture. It's part of an accommodation, for example. Mm -hmm. Record the lecture right. and go back and play it back to yourself and try to get all that information because you know you're going to miss it. And it's not like you're going to, you can't remember it. It's that you can't learn it to begin with. So those are the kinds of things that people can actually do once they understand what the problem is. And it can be very, very helpful. Yeah, these sound like very straightforward kinds of techniques. And it's really encouraging, I'm sure, for people who may have these difficulties to know that there are strategies that could be learned to improve their functions. So that's really great to know that. One additional thing I wanted to ask you about is just regarding things like depression and anxiety that we both know are very common in a lot of these brain disorders that you've talked about, like in traumatic brain injury, things like multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, mild cognitive impairment. We also commonly see things like depression and anxiety that go along with them. Now, is addressing those kinds of concerns something that's done in cognitive rehabilitation, or would that be something that would normally, say, be treated by a therapist or a psychotherapist or something like that? Well, certainly, they would be part of the cognitive rehabilitation program. It may be as part of that program, there is a therapist who's dealing with the issues themselves. So if a person is, is very depressed, you're not going to be able to teach them to utilize the kinds of interventions that I had mentioned earlier, because they're just not learning it. They're too depressed to be able to really get anything new. So you have to deal right. with depression. And so that's certainly part of the program. And that's part of the professional knowing what to do and when to do it. So dealing with the depression would be really important. There are also more subtle kinds of things that a patient can do. So imagine in the example I gave about being at a party and someone speaking to you, and there are all kinds of things in the conversation, part of which you're supposed to remember because you were invited to go somewhere on Thursday, knowing that you've been having a problem with your memory, let's just say. A lot of times patients just get, they freeze. They get anxious in the moment. It's like, oh, 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 what did that person say? I don't know how to respond. That's a sort of subtle, you know, state kind of anxiety that really stops people from remembering something, number one. Number two, going into social situations because they're now afraid of that anxiety. And so they're treating that anxiety becomes really important to allow the patient to feel comfortable to say, can you hold on a second? What did you mean by that again? I'm not sure I got that. Mm -hmm. Rather than becoming anxious and freezing and then stop going to social events, staying home and being isolated and becoming more and more depressed, you want right. to stop that. So there are definitely ways you can see that cognition and affect like depression and anxiety work together. The brain works as an integrated whole. Right. And so the professional knows how to deal with things. And that can be really, really helpful for the patient so that the family can actually go through cognitively stimulating environments. So they don't mm -hmm. feel 
Like, I can't do that because mm-hmm. I feel uncomfortable. Dealing with it can actually get the person into a reading, a reading group or a mm-hmm. playing card situation. Well, it seems like this all goes back to this individualized plan of care that you talked about at the beginning as well, that that's really important to integrate all these different elements that could come into play when somebody's trying to recover from uh, some kind of brain injury or problems that they're having related to that. And, you know, I could see from what you're saying that a person could develop skills to remember things better, to process things better, but if they get very anxious in a social situation, they can't really draw upon those skills so they freeze up. So it's really good to know that, that there would be techniques that could be integrated into that plan of care to help a person in a situation like that. Well, this is great stuff, Dr. DeLuca. Do you have any last words for us regarding cognitive rehabilitation that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, you know, we always want to help our patients. And sometimes, you know, you have to be able to try to get the treatment that you need. Unfortunately, it may not be the easiest thing in the world. I think you try. If you cannot get coverage from insurance or if you don't have insurance, try to provide a stimulating environment for your patient. Don't ever push them to more than they can do, but go for walks and include them in conversations. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really important because patients actually can get better. Those are very encouraging words. And we really appreciate your time today, Dr. Luca. That was fantastic for our listeners. And I'm sure people are going to really enjoy this and it'll be very helpful to the patients that are suffering from some of these problems with their cognitive functioning. Thank you, Dr. Annette. I really enjoyed it. This podcast series is sponsored by the NAN Foundation, which can be contacted through our website, nanfoundation.org. The NAN Foundation relies on donations, so please see the website for more information. Also, remember to follow our BrainBeat podcast on Twitter at BrainBeatPod.